Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm Dr. Dave O'Brien, your host. On this episode, we'll be talking about devising consumption, cultural economies of insurance, credit, and spending by Liz McFall. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking with Liz McFall, who's head of the sociology department at the Open University. Um, we're going to be talking about her new book, Devising Consumption, Cultural Economies of Insurance, Credit, and Spending, which was published by Routledge in 2015. So well, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so to kick off with, um, it'd be good if you could tell the listeners a little bit about um, your academic background and the, the sort of um, circumstances surrounding you writing the book. Okay. Um, I shall try not to be too long-winded because I will go. Okay. I, I, I will heave her. <laughs> that, that, that is my cultural disposition. <laughs> Um, so uh, I think around about the time when the book was trying was coming together in my head, which would be about 2010, I'd submitted a proposal and had it accepted two years earlier. But I, other than I knew I wanted to write about the empirical case I'd been studying, I wasn't that clear exactly what it was I wanted to say. But around about the time it started to take shape in my head, I had begun to see what... I've always thought of as my mongrel education, less as a disadvantage than an advantage, because I didn't have, I didn't take a conventional route into an academic career. I had a very interdisciplinary background. And when I first started working in an academic environment in the mid-90s, I was always struggling to find the word that described me. You know, people would say I'm a sociologist, I'm a psychologist. And I'd done a first degree in communication studies and a master's in information management. And I didn't have that one word. So when I started my PhD in sociology, I enjoyed calling myself a sociologist. Ten years later, when when I was working on the book, it was clear to me that I wasn't really a sociologist in the sense that many of my colleagues were using the word. Because I stood in the, the things I was interested in stood in the middle of a whole bunch of um, different debates, debates that were happening in all sorts of um, different contexts within the social studies of finance, within the sociology of consumption, within what was becoming market studies, and um, within philosophy, within history and business history, within social policy and governance debates. Um, And I couldn't stop being interested in any of them. So the project of the book started to be this sort of, well, I will. I didn't mention cultural studies, which is terrible, because cultural studies would have been one of the key influences. Um, I wanted to distill them and bring them all together to look at this problem without being so hidebound by the kind of disciplinary observances that we all do of um, talking the vocabulary that, prevails in our subfield and that's really that's really challenging because you know you want to talk to your 
academic field, but I also wanted to talk about things and issues that went beyond my academic field. And I think the book is an experiment in, in trying to do that, to try to raise a problem, which I do think is a sociological problem at its very core. It's the biggest sociological problem that there is. Um, but it's one that sociology doesn't tend to say that very much about. And that is to do with how do we understand how individuals are in the social world? How do we understand that relationship and what shapes it and what makes things the way they are? What turn, what makes practices the way they are? I mean, it's, it's funny in a way, because the other uh, disciplinary area you, you could have mentioned was history, because... In in some ways, it's as much a sort of a history book or a business a history book, a history of of finance book, as it is a cultural studies, a sociology, um, a science and technology uh, studies book. So it, it's it's got a really interesting, rich interdisciplinary um, background. And it is, I suppose it'd be good um, if you could talk through what the kind of core argument is in the book and uh, about why it was that. Um, insurance uh, salesmen going door-to-door um, from the Victorian era um, up until the, the middle of, of the 20th century provides such a good case study for the core argument of the book. Okay, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It is, in large measure, it's a history book, but it's not a history book because at the bottom of it, and I, I have, you know, uh, I've learned more about insurance from historians than anyone else. I'm more engaged with insurance history than I am with um, the sort of theorisation of insurance that goes on in many other um, sectors. So, you know, I'm very close to that project, but I also am close enough to it to know that the things that I was interested in were different, partly because I didn't want to know, this is the quickest way I can think of to put it, I didn't want to know how many policies there were in existence amongst working-class consumers in 1911 because I wanted to know how many policies were in existence. And that is a kind of historical question. I do want to know that history because I have a very empirical orientation to the work. And that that would be one of my key arguments with um, the type of uh, exposure I'd had to a certain part of the sociological project was that it wasn't, by the time I started doing my PhD, empirical enough. Empirical work didn't have the standing that um, theoretical work has. So um, to get back to the point of your question, the core argument of the book in one sentence is that that consumption is devised. Now, that is different from saying that consumption is produced, and it's different from saying that consumption is autonomous. And those are both statements that I would associate with being quite representing quite strong traditions within the sociology of consumption. Um, In a Frankfurt School image, consumption is produced by the monolithic efforts of of capitalism. Um, And then in a more postmodern, post-structuralist moment, you get consumption as this sort of free-for-all of identity production. Yeah, people are either kind of duped by a system or we should celebrate their autonomous choices. That, that, that's right. And I, I, I wanted to find a way of understanding how... I suppose in the book I wanted to um, try and explore why neither of those views were really 
um, convincing to me on the basis of empirical exposure and the basis of a lot of time spent in the archives and a lot of time going through dusty records and a lot of time looking at just dull, mundane documentary history of what's going on. Neither, neither of those views seem to be a good enough explanation of why this um, particular product that the book concentrated on or series of products ended up being so huge because um, to take another way into it, I had done my PhD and my first book that came out of it was another historical project which studied how advertising worked and it did kind of look at the sociology of advertising and cultural studies approach to advertising and see the same sort of things. I think, well, the problem with the way we look at advertising and other types of uh, marketing and enterprises sociologically is that when you start to dig under the ground ground and look at uh, um, historical evidence, the things we claim about advertising and about promotion more generally just seem to be quite consistent concerns. So the view that advertising is becoming more pervasive, it's getting everywhere, that advertising is becoming more persuasive, that advertising is messing up the distinction between art and finance, art and economy, culture and economy. Um, is it, you know, you can, you can find it 200 years ago. You can find um, people moaning about the same things. Oh, we can't trust advertising as lies. We can't trust it. It's getting in the road. Um, so that sort of, there's a, there's a, a long way of saying that there's a disjuncture between what I kept finding empirically and the types of strong statements that were coming out of sociological and cultural studies type projects. And both books, the earlier one on advertising and this recent one, stay in the same place of saying, well, the empirical an empirical history doesn't really sit that well with those kind of views. And I suppose both books take this kind of strong empirical defence, this strong defence of a kind of radical empirical approach. And there are problems with it, um, and I'm very aware of what the problems with it are. One of the biggest ones is the so what problem. And it's one of the, it is is a a big problem because when I try to talk to people about industrial insurance, I can see the glaze coming off their eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's not sexy. And it's it's general importance in terms of wrestling with where we are now and making sense of neoliberalism uh, or whatever words um, carry political weight. It, it's not right up there. Um, but for me, intellectually, the empirical project is our best hope of finding anything useful, informing useful interventions. And there is a desire in the book, I'm not sure that it's successful, but there is a desire in the book to try and inform a useful intervention, to try and understand the relationship between people and their worlds better and in a more descriptive way. And, and actually, what what's really interesting about that um, that kind of task you set for yourself is the payoff in terms of being able to reconstruct consumption practices for which there are there are very few records and are quite difficult to kind of get get to grips with by thinking through 
the you know the kind of the, almost the market decisions of people to spend on particular insurance products, uh, and by kind of like working your way through how um, door to door sales of insurance to poorer populations over uh, the Victorian and kind of post Victorian period, you, you get a real sense of what people's lives were like in terms of what they were consuming, how they were consuming, why they were consuming. In terms of what mattered, uh, you know, later in the book, you know, there are discussions of kind of rituals of funerals and funeral costs and, you know, understandings of the meaning of death and, and this kind of thing. And so the kind of the construction of the social world through this one one route in, I, I think, is a kind of um, it, it's something the book tries to do. But it's almost a kind of a, you know, an added bonus that comes um, from, from the really detailed engagement with um, financial services. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a great question, um, and I think that is at the at the very heart of the book. And I did I did think about it this week rather late in the writing of the book, but I'd come I I came across this quote by Charles Masterman, "The poor are so very very silent," which is the epigram of the book, um, and I think that goes to the heart of uh, of. Um, what the book is about and the defence of a radically empirical project is that we are talking about an industry that sold millions upon millions upon millions of policies to people who had hardly any money for a period over over, over 140 years before it starts to um, really decline. Now, in terms of the way that sociologists and social theorists and other interested parties talk about consumption. What I was quite clear at the start of writing this book that they did not do was to look at the forms of consumption that were really kind of dull and difficult. And they also didn't really look at the consumption of services, in particular financial services. And more, to get even finer, they certainly didn't look at the way people with limited means consumed financial services. I could find almost no literature when I started this book um, about how people with uh, no sociological literature, should I say. I mean, there may be some literature somewhere in marketing and in um, policy circles, but there was no sort of sociological engagement with the consumption of really dull products, really dull products and services. Um, and certainly our historical vision of sociologists does tend to be a bit of a post-war historical vision. We look at what things that happened after 1945 um, in Anglo-Saxon sociology and we don't spend that much time worrying about what happened before that and I think that's a major problem. But um, this notion of the poor being so very, very silent did kind of well, you can find out something. You can't. They're, they're, you're right. The the records are lost largely about what Masterman's point was. Policymakers were rushing around trying to improve the condition of the poor without knowing the first thing about who they were, what they thought, what they did, or why. They were very concerned with making them behave differently, making them make better choices, which is still a current policy debate. How do we make the poor make better choices? Um, but no one was really paying that much attention to what they were actually doing in policy circles. The insurance industry never had that problem. Yeah. They weren't interested in what the poor should be doing. 
that they were very interested in what they were doing. And their their market was a response. Their success, should I say, was a response to the fact that they were interested in finding out, well, what are the poor doing and how can we, how can we lock into that? How can we connect with that? Um, and ultimately make a great deal, a great deal of money out of doing so. Yeah, it, it's really interesting, actually, because in, in the second chapter of the book, you, you mount, I mean, I wouldn't call it a defense of markets, but you, you really kind of outline one of the ways that the way this uh, market for insurance functioned was grounded in a kind of an attentiveness to the social reality of the people that were, were involved in the market, as opposed to the state, which was trying to design almost sort of rational responses um, to questions about social insurance in terms of kind of efficiency. So one of the things you, you, you mentioned is, you know, having door-to-door salesmen was hugely inefficient. You know, it was very, very expensive. Um, and, you know, it took a lot of, of, of premiums to kind of cover the costs of this. Um, and yet what it meant was that the insurance companies had really detailed knowledge about, you know, people's lives and almost kind of, you know, the intangible uh, knowledge, which led them to be able to target particular products much more successfully and to kind of enroll and and, and, and engage people um, in the market for insurance much more kind of successfully than, than the state um, was able to. And one of the things, one of the terms you use is the kind of the idea of markets being groovy. Um, so I wonder if you could say a little, a little bit about that term and kind of how that plays out in the, in the example of, of insurance sales. Yeah, sure. I love that term. Um, there's an acknowledgement to Harvey Mollich. Um, it's his term, groovy like the market. Um, and I'm not sure that Harvey, when he says groovy like the market, and when I say groovy like the market in that chapter, I don't, I'm not sure we mean entirely the same thing. Um, because I think Harvey, Harvey does actually mean that markets are better at being hip and they're better at being chic and they're better at um, giving people something of what they want to be. Um, that may or may not be so in some cases, but certainly insurance marketing is not particularly hip for the most part. And it's not particularly trendy and it's not, it's not particularly fashionable. When I say groovy, I'm talking about... Um, a connection. I'm talking about. I, I describe a groove, uh, a passage in which um, information about what people are doing, what they think, what they want, what they're talking about, and a company that's trying to um, provide products or services for that target group is maintained, a channel is maintained between the two. And agents fundamentally work as a, a as that groove, that channel. They are a device, for want of a better um, term at the minute, they are, a, they are a device which enables feedback about who the customers are and what they're up to and what they've done, their transaction histories, to go back to the companies. They are also, at the same time, able to pass what the company wants them to say to directly to the consumer's houses, they are in the front rooms. You know, we talk a lot about customer relationship management and Amazon and companies like it now and who are very good at um, keeping information about what we've bought before and matching it to what we might like to buy next. 
Um, but this is precisely what agents did. And it's, a, and it's an absolutely fascinating case study because this is mass data processing before the fact, before there was any automated data processing. But these companies, through the activities of individual agents in millions of houses in the country, had this were part of this massive bureaucracy that passed paper records up stage by stage by stage to the companies and down stage by stage by stage they passed company messages to consumers. And that was one of the reasons why they were so successful for so long. And it was one of the reasons why their market, controversial as it was, as you said earlier, it was a very expensive business model. Putting an agent in every house in the country costs a lot of money. And that meant that the poor were getting a very poor return on their investment, up to 50%, sometimes even more of their premiums would be spent on administration costs. So that means that the policy was a poor investment. And for that reason, they were very, very controversial. But nevertheless, despite successive governments across the political spectrum's desire to regulate these companies out of existence, they couldn't in the end. And one of the reasons they couldn't was because that the strength of that groove, that connection, meant that they had electoral and political clout that terrified various governments and effectively they outmaneuvered out them because they had this kind of presence in every working class home in the country. So the feed, feedback is the key thing. You mentioned the um, that term device, which yeah. um, is, you know, a kind of... Um, key sociological uh, term at the moment um and the first chapter in the book is is a bit of an engagement with this term so i wonder if you could um if you could talk through what what you mean by by the device um and you know you, you illustrate you mentioned how some of the agents involved in this market could be seen as devices yeah yeah i mean i think it's it's fascinating round about the end of writing my PhD, I came across The Laws of the Markets by Michel Callum. And uh, my PhD was actually called Quaint Devices, um, A Genealogy of Advertising Practices. And it, it was called that because I'd come across a, a, a reference from, I think, a 17th century reference, which refers to advertising as a quaint device. And when in that reference to advertising, the word device means something very particular that, that that sense is largely lost in the market devices literature. Um, it means something which is much more akin to uh, the sense in the Book of Common Prayer. Now, let me just read this to you um, because it's, uh, it's, it's important. So for those who are not familiar with the Anglican tradition, the Book of Common Prayer says... We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. This um, sense of the word device has always been in my head when I've used the term because it sort of hi it, it highlights the way 
in which there's something going on in the device that we don't get. There's some kind of trick, some kind of mechanism, some kind of surprise, some kind of thing that we can't know and can't get to, which seems to me very important for understanding consumer market activity. Sometimes when we respond to a marketing proposition, we respond both knowing we're being duped and still wanting, or we respond without thinking at all, or we respond in the way that, oh, we think that actually that might make us into something that we know it possibly, it cannot possibly make us into some, this thing that's being promised. So I wanted to hold on to that sense of surprise, mystery, confusion, unconscious um, desire. And yeah, that is not, I don't think, the way the term device is used in the literature. And I have some, I learned a huge, it's difficult for me because I learned a huge amount from the market devices literature. Mm. Um, and I think it's, the instinct is right, but I think the concept is problematic. And I, I, I try to explain why in chapter one of the book in particular. And the concept is problematic for a few reasons. One is to do with its extent and its definition. But what are we talking about when we're talking about a device? If you look at the literature, the empirical literature, people might be talking about something like um, a score, a credit scorecard, or they might be talking about something like a sales ticker, which records price variations on the stock market, or they might be talking about the devices of marketing research, which could be almost anything. So... There's a question of extent and limits and where do we stop, you know, in the wonderful explanation that Fabian Manessa, Milo and Callum give at the start of the Market Devices book. They say the subject and the object are not separated. This does not imply a separation between human and machine. But when I hear people talking about it, they're always separating human and machine. They're always saying, um, they're always putting the human being outside of the effect of this device. What's the effect of this device on human people? So um, there is this, there's problems of definition, with scale, about how do we understand? So devices are very closely related to the performativity debate, um, that in having these formulae, these algorithms, these tools, the world is performed economically in the way that these tools assume. Now, after the financial crisis, that became a much harder position to defend um, because so many things had gone wrong. Michelle Callens published the uh, piece Performity, Misfires and Politics in 2010, which says that the normal effect of a device is a misfire. Um, so devices usually fail. So we get, we get into this kind of morass, but what are we dealing with? This kind of failing assemblage of everything? Philip Murawski um, has a wonderful piece in the McKenzie collection. Oh, do, do economists make markets? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, which I think he says, well, you know, this is tautological and, and almost nothing. Basically, you're saying everything in the world makes everything in the world the way that it is. And this is this is the logical problem that you end up with, with the, the sort of theoretical Influenced by Deleuze and Guattari and Foucault, philosophical notion of the device or agencement, 
is there are no limits to the extent of this thing. Um, that's a very, even a very skilled researcher is going to struggle trying to put that to work. So although I think there is some real purchase in there somewhere, um, I kind of get lost with it. Um, so I, I think I started thinking of agents as devices and I ended by thinking of agents as being involved in work, which I would call devising. I mean, it's no accident that the book's called Devising Consumption. Um, I think the agents are involved in devising as a practice, a dynamic practice um, of, of, of gathering this feedback from customers and passing messages back and forward of, of shaping and responding to their markets. So that's a, that's a practice that moves and shapes all the time and, it, and, and sometimes it goes horribly wrong and doesn't work. Um, to me, that's preferable, although it does some of the same work, it's preferable than, than devices themselves because of these questions about, well, what are the limits? What's outside of the device? Is anything outside of the device? Where is the human being in relationship to the device is the human being enacted through the device? What is the human being outside of that enactment? Are you telling me that um, market research activities or credit score cards make human beings what they are? That seems unpersuasive. Um, so for all those reasons, that's a long answer, but for all those reasons, I kind of end, started with devices and ended up in preferring the word devising so the, the act of devising, I wonder if you could illustrate it with um, one of the questions that, that Chapter 4 deals with, which is about the idea of um, doorstep agents kind of, uh, I'm trying to think of the phrase you use, linking warm sentiments to the cold rationality of, of, of market activities, um, you know, how, how people get essentially kind of attached to existing and, and potential insurance products. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a number of um, things that agents are doing. So insurance agents are basically what they're doing is they operate as the collectors of premiums and the sellers of policies. So they sell policies door by door. And once that sale has been made, um, they can revisit the homes on a weekly basis to collect premiums towards those policies. And these are long term policies. Uh, so you could be dealing with an agent visiting the same house on a weekly basis for years, possibly even for generations. When they do that visit, they've got a couple of tools with them. One of them would be the account book. In that account book, the whole transaction history of this policy is recorded. Um, the policyholder at the same time has their own um echo of that record, they have a premium receipt book that records these transactions. But the agent's book doesn't just stay with the agent. The agent's book um, goes back to the branch office and then it's retranscribed and then it goes back to the head office. So this is a kind of rational record of the transaction history. It's an account of the transaction history um, of that agent's relationship with that policyholder, right? But what I said earlier on is the agent is in someone's house for years, every week. Um, conversations happen in that house. Um, chat is going on. The agent 
both accidentally and deliberately becomes the friend of the family. It's much easier um, to sell the next policy to someone who you're getting along with. So the agent is skilled and trained in establishing the kind of rapport that might enable them to be the guys, friends and philosophers of, of, of their policyholders. So in all that time, there's all this kind of odd conversation or friendship um, going on where the agent might, for example, offer a reference for, for the for a child of the family when they're looking for their first job. And that seems like a, a warm, friendly thing to do because the agent has a certain authority, he's a white-collar guy in a working-class area, um, he's relatively well-to-do in a working-class area, and I say he deliberately because although there were women agents, most of them were men. Yeah. Um, as, as you described in the kind of the good speak. average man. Yeah, a good a, a good average man. This is the whole kind of cultivation of, of, of agents to be this kind of blank slate, this tabula rasa, this perfect fit in any of the households they go to. And that cultivation is very deliberate, a very deliberate attempt to try and make the agent acceptable in as many different sorts of households as possible. So the agent can't be too posh. They can't be too casual. They can't be too much of a dandy. They've got to be just kind of blank and reasonable and average and nice and good enough but not so good in terms of their sort of economic or cultural um, distinction that they would intimidate and people wouldn't want to talk to them. So they've got to be able to talk the language of the household's that they're entering into. So all that is a, that's a sentimental relationship. So there's both both a sort of straightforward rational economic transaction going on, but there's also a much warmer um, cultivation of, of, of a, a human relationship going on. Um, an attempt to make sure that the agent talks about the right football teams when he gets over the door. Um, all those, all those kinds of things that go into, we quite like Mr. So-and-so. We want our children um, to also ensure we're Mr. So-and-so. Um, Mr. So-and-so is one of us. That is a warm transaction. Mr. So-and-so looks like us. He looks like who we want to be. Um, he's not a stranger. That, these are all warm, sentimental transactions. And they're necessary to move people. And the, the strongest example I can get to of that is another side of the industry where there are oral history records of people continuing to take doorstep loans from agents long after they needed the credit. So they may have at one point needed a, a loan from the provident, but they no longer needed to take credit, but they continued to borrow at high rates because they liked the person who was selling the credit and they wanted them to have the business and that that's the kind of mixture of reason and sentiment in an economic transaction but it really makes no sense to continue to borrow expensively when you don't need to you know provident was not as expensive in the 1950s as it is now but it was still expensive mm. and the idea that people kept borrowing with them just because they liked the agent is, is kind of it's a nice it's a nice example of the inescapability of that mixture of reason and sentiment 
in economic transactions, in financial transactions. Yeah, it makes perfect sense when you understand the, the kind of, yeah, the, the friendships, the status, the social and emotional investments that have gone in um, to this this relationship. I, I wonder, by way of conclusion, if, if you could briefly sketch um, the sort of decline and fall um, of these methods and, and, and this, um, I suppose, this, this amount of effort that had gone in um, to running in the insurance system in, in this way. Um, and, and perhaps in, in, in the course of that, maybe, maybe say a bit about what you're kind of doing next in, in terms of what happens after the book. Okay. Um, I think the failure of the industrial insurance industry is absolutely fascinating in terms of thinking about devising and thinking about devices and desires because the failure of it goes to the very heart of this. What I think there's currently a buzz around the word agnotology. Um, this kind of ignorance, this sense of we can have all this information but we still can't know. You know, there's super abundant proliferating information and this is what we get around the big data debates. But we still don't seem to know. We seem to drown in this information. Stefan Schwarzkopf um, got a paper at the, that I, I heard a few weeks ago looking at market research and the proliferation of market research data um, and how clients just don't really know what to do with it. Um, so, so much data that doesn't help you actually make decisions because in the end, what it is that makes markets fail is always this kind of, it, it evades understanding. So this fascinates me with industrial insurance because in the 1960s, they knew the market would fail. They had market research saying, recording that there had been this shift in sentiment in which the industrial insurance agent, this guide philosopher and friend, this um, stalwart of working class homes, was now indelibly associated with um, grey, faceless subsistence consumption and death, and that the newly affluent working classes did not want this from their financial services provider. Now, companies like the Prudential, which were absolutely enormous companies, um, had market research, which compellingly laid out this picture for them in the 1960s. It took another two or three decades before the market finally came to an end. So you get this sense of people, of, of a company driving off a precipice, much in the way that people are talking about Tesco doing now. Despite having the data and the information telling them that there's this problem, there's one thing knowing that there's a problem, Knowing how to arrest it and turn it around is, is another thing. And this does relate to um, well, uh, the problem I've turned to since coming to the end of the book, um, which is an epistemological thing. What, what, do, what does it mean to know and what kind of knowing is useful? Throughout the book... I'm trying to kind of defend a descriptive approach rather than a normative approach to to social problems like um, financial inclusion and making sure that the 
people have access to the types of financial services that might enable them to live um, and do what they want to do um, more effectively. And one of the areas where that is most an issue is an issue of health, an area of healthcare. Right about the time that I was finishing, just after I finished the book, I was in the US talking about Obamacare. Um, and Obamacare, for those who don't want to go into the detail of it, basically is an attempt to provide medical health insurance cover for people at a particular place in the market. They're not the very, very poor, nor are they quite the, the well-to-do. They're the sort of, not that, <laughs> the lower middle classes, but not that well-off. And Obamacare attempts to provide a form of um, insurance for them but it's stuck with the classic health insurance problem. How do you get people to, the classic insurance problem, should I say, how do you get people to, to spend their money on something that they don't really want to think about? Now, industrial insurance did that really well. Health insurance companies are um, using various techniques uh, in the, that are available to them with the um, big data revolution um, and social media to try and kind of pull people into understanding that health insurance is something that they should have. But health insurance and health care provision are, are, you know, they're massive global problems. So we've got aging populations everywhere. We've got healthcare costs spiraling everywhere. And we get through big data and analytics and the digital into this position of, oh, well, the solution is digital health. So digital health is being sold as the way to um, arrest healthcare costs, to get people more effective coverage and a better quality of care. And the place they're turning to in the UK, in the NHS, to look at how that's working is the market. They think, well, banks, they know how to do um, digital and online customer care. Amazon know how to do it. Apple know how to do it. So we need to learn from them. And there's this there's this view that the the big big data and the digital thing will will save them. So the direction of research post this book is towards looking at well, how much does this kind of technological change and this proliferation of data actually enable you to achieve better social outcomes? And what is the re- relationship between markets and states in terms of achieving better social outcomes. Can states do a better job by being groovy like the market? I would say in the NHS and those involved in defining new policy for the NHS, that is, whether or not you're talking about privatising the NHS, which is a whole different thing, um, even people who want to keep the NHS absolutely, as it is, still think that they can learn from the market. So the next kind of empirical project is to try and make sense of why do they think that? What exactly do they think? And what, what, what will be the outcomes of it? So, yeah, yeah. And an, another book um, or series of papers or, or um, should I not ask you these questions for a project <laughs> that will be a five, ten year undertaking? There will probably be another book at, at some point. Um, the current... The work, I'm working on a paper currently called Devising Risks Digitally because there is there is an issue um, which I, we won't go into here because we're 
be here till next week. Um, but there, there is an issue with whether or not this kind of big data, digital way of um, dealing with insurance actually personalises um, insurance and risks to such a fine extent that it actually ends the whole logic of insurance and insurance is no longer insurance. In the book, I distinguish between insurance and credit. The end point of personalising risk is that insurance becomes credit. Everyone pays for their bad habits mm. themselves. Um, if you smoke, if you don't use your Fitbit, if you don't monitor your blood sugar, blah, 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 you're paid a premium. You pay, you pay the premium for all those health risks you take. This completely defeats the logic of insurance, which is basically saying, we don't know, we know that what mortality rates are, but we don't know at an individual level who's going to get sick and who's going to die young. Therefore, we spread the costs of those risks across the population. That's what insurance does. Credit doesn't. Credit says you pay for you pay for what you want when you want it. So if you want to um, live unhealthily or cycle without a helmet, you can do that, but you pay for it. That's not insurance. That's credit. Um, so this is this is where, this is where I've ended up in in. And it finally takes me out of history and into um, the present day, which is a surprise for me. I was listening to New Books in Critical Theory, where we were talking about devising consumption, cultural economies of insurance, credit, spending.